0: Welcome to another edition of Focus on Alternatives, hosted by ADISA, the Alternative and Direct Investment Securities Association. I'm Damon Elder, publisher of the theDIWire.com, and today we're joined by Sean Raft, Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel of Urban Catalyst. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Damon. We're going to talk about something I think you're particularly expert at because you've lived through it, which is the promulgation of 506C offerings and the way they're starting to become Largely embraced by the broker-dealer community and then the investment sponsor community. And, you know, I think Urban Catalyst is a very interesting case study because when you guys launched a few years ago, you were solely using 506Cs to go directly to investors. You've then subsequently, in the last several years, you've invested a tremendous amount of capital and energy into building distribution through the traditional broker-dealer and RIA communities. So I think it's gonna be very interesting to talk about the real-world dynamics of 506C. So thanks for joining us, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you're an attorney, so let's talk about it. What are the best practices in applying 506C in this industry?
1: Yeah, it's very important to be careful, I think, when you're implementing anything, especially when securities are involved. But when Urban Catalyst was starting, we really had just one channel, as you identified, and that was utilizing the 506C to go direct. When I arrived in early 2019, I had made a pitch internally to the partners that we needed to broaden our fundraising horizon to include the broker-dealer channel and the RRA channel as well. But I wanted to be very careful in how we did it because I wanted to respect the partnership that we would be creating with the broker-dealers and RAs. I didn't want to step on their toes. I wanted to make sure we did it right and that we, you know, we addressed whatever concerns they had because the 506C was a bit of a scarlet letter you know, as I was doing my research and coming in, and, and, and most folks didn't really want to touch it. And so I, I needed to figure out why, how to address it, and how to alleviate the concerns broadly within the broker-dealer de- community as quickly a, as I possibly could. So
0: 506C is the result of the JOBS Act, which passed in 2013 mm-hmm. in the, uh, the tailwinds of the Great Recession. And it was, the JOBS Act was intended to help smaller businesses raise capital. So they brought the 506C, which one of the, the most notable differences between 506C and B is that it allows for general solicitation. Right and you know, the accreditation process. So in applying the 506C, what were some of those hurdles? Why did it have that scarlet letter? And what were those hurdles that you were encountering with the broker-dealer community in introducing these 506 offerings, 506C offerings, offerings?
1: Yeah, that's the million dollar question. And I think there's really two answers to it. There's the answer that I was getting from the broker-dealers you know, directly. And then there is the answer, I think, what was going on internally that maybe they didn't want to talk about at least until they got to know who I was. And you know the first objection that they had well they had there were several, but the one that I'm going I'm to talk about because I received the most, is the unraveling of the exemption itself. So the concern is, to summarize their concern, that with the B, under uh, B2I, uh, you have the exemption for 35 sophisticated, non-accredited investors being allowed in, into the, the B offering. With the C, you don't have that. And so the concern was, well, in a C, if you don't have, uh, if one of your investors as, ends up not being actually accredited, does that mean you lose, you blow the exemption, everything unravels, and now there's rescission rights and everything else? And it's, it's, it was a, a bit of, uh, some of the legal concepts were convoluted in the concern and the fear, but there was this mythology built up that uh, 506C therefore became far more risky than a B for that reason. Whereas the truth is, I think, from a legal perspective, quite the opposite. With the C, uh, the, really, the only standard from the sponsor's perspective that they have to adhere to is the reasonable steps to verify accredited investor status. They don't actually have to perform the, accredited, the accreditation or the verification themselves. matter of fact, they, uh, it's not even allowed. So well, it, it could be allowed. But what's expressly permitted in 506c itself is if you utilize a broker-dealer, a registered investment advisor, a a certified public accountant in good standing, or an attorney in good standing, if any of those four are utilized, then it's presumptively met. The the sponsor's burden of of, uh, achieving the reasonable steps towards verifying credit investor status is, is presumptively met. So So let's hold on there for a second. So clearly, obviously, the investor
0: verification is key to successful application of 506C. So if a CPA or some other person that should know the verification status of their investor brings it to the issuer, that is considered adequate. And if ultimately that person is determined to not be an accredited investor... It doesn't blow the exemption?
1: It, it doesn't. And uh, so the standard really on the sponsor in terms of them utilizing their exemption is only that they've taken reasonable steps. And 506C and the regulations spell out, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean for you, the sponsor, to have what, – what kind of steps do you need to take for them to be reasonable? And, and the regulation itself states that, hey, if I'm relying on an, what I would call an authorized third party, which is the CPA, attorney, broker, dealer, registered investment advisor – then I have satisfied that burden as a sponsor. Therefore, if it later turns out that that investor wasn't actually accredited because the person who was doing the verification did it incorrectly for some reason, so long as I was reasonable in in taking the steps to verify that AI by relying on your representation that they're accredited, then the verification is intact. I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, the exemption is intact, yeah, and, and nothing unravels, there's nothing to worry about. And matter of fact, I th- it was uh, the SEC answered this question specifically in 2013 when the question came up, I think it was uh, uh, 260.26, I think, I'll double check that, it's in my notes. But that uh, the SEC was asked exactly that question, hey, does the exemption under C unravel if one of the investors that was accredited later turns out not to be? And the SEC says no. So long as you took reasonable steps, the the um, exemption remains intact. Okay. So does the broker-dealer have any responsibility in that process? It's up to the broker-dealer okay. because the broker-dealer. So the broker-dealer has two requirements: suitability analysis, and then also, with respect to the investor, they can elect to do their verification or not.
0: Which, for a lot of these broker-dealers, it should be really simple, right? Because these are their clients. They know what their net worths are. They know what they're invested in.
1: It, it should, but but they're not, required, but they're not to. required to. They're not required to. They could rely. There are third-party services out there, uh, VerifyInvestor.com being one of them, where it's all certified attorneys in good standing that are performing the the AI verification. And so, a broker-dealer or a sponsor, for that matter, could you know retain that third-party uh, accreditation service to determine whether or not their investors are accredited. They'll they'll provide the letter. They'll do all the research, and and there you go. And if and if the broker-dealer hasn't done that, but delegated it to that third party, then I, I don't think the broker-dealer um, is going to face any responsibility if that AI verification is botched. But that's not really what, you know, the heart of my analysis is really toward this on the sponsor side. Because ultimately, that's where the
0: responsibility lies. Right. That's right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, then again, I, I'm fascinated by the comp- the competition aspect of things. So again, you, your firm has successfully made this leap where you're successfully raising capital directly from an investor, which some would say, well, you're competing with the Mm broker-dealer, and yet you've made these relationships with broker-dealers and are attracting capital through that channel. What's the magic? What's the
1: secret sauce? Yeah, Damon, I mean, you're hitting it right on the head. I think, you know, initially, like I was saying, the two categories of objections that I received, the first one we just dealt with, which was the unraveling of the verification and, and the exemption. But I think at the heart of it, the competition may be, You know, more important to many of the broker dealers because it's their business, it's their livelihood. We're very aware of that. I'm very aware of that. You know, at Urban Catalyst, and we wanted to make sure that our partnership benefited both parties, ourselves and the broker dealer community as well. I think you could structure. There's lots of ways to structure a deal. You could be very careful in the way you structure it. You could reach out to the partners in the broker dealer space and the RIA space and say, Hey, what is it that you like to see? What is it that you would like, you know, like from us? And and In our first couple of Opportunity Zone funds, the distillation of that resulted in a couple of things that we've adopted internally. One of them is we cross-reference any investor that comes into our fund, whatever channel it's coming through. And we have a database uh, internally that can flag any investor that potentially might have a connection to any broker-dealer or a registered investment advisor. If that flag is tripped, we immediately contact the, the firm, and we, uh, that particular firm, and say, hey, here's this person, they reached out to us, they raised their hand, do you recognize this person? Is this someone that you've worked with, a client or a potential client? If the answer is yes, we hand that individual off to, the appropriate, to that firm, uh, and that's it for, uh, from our perspective. We've done that a few times in the, last, in the last few years. Matter of fact, we've handed off a particular client or investor that came to us directly, turned out to be uh, the client of a broker-dealer, that we informed the broker-dealer, we put them in touch with the client, and ultimately we lost the deal. But that's okay because the, the relationship with that broker-dealer is more important to us than anyone's sale. That's one thing. The second thing is to point out that on the direct side, we don't make any commission. So, you know, our— uh, You don't care where they come no, from. No, we don't care because we're, we're not—you know, it doesn't matter to us. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not truly in competition with those firms for their dollars. They, they want to go ahead and they want to earn that money, please. We would love our, our partnership with those firms to be uh, fruitful for both sides. So we want them to make their money because we want them to be happy so that they can do more deals with us in the future.
0: Okay. So this 5060 is still, even though it's nine years old now and it's growing and it's being accepted more broadly in the industry, still, it's still fairly new especially to an industry that moves fairly slowly when new things come to market. So what are some other best practices that people should be aware of, things
1: that you've gone through? Yeah, thank you, Damon. I I think one of the things I'd like to highlight is sponsors should take some time and be very careful about noticing who's actually signing the AI verification. If it turns out that the broker-dealer or the IRA decides to make the election to do the verification themselves, that's fine. But I, but I think 506c itself is very specific. It says broker-dealer or registered investment advisor. It doesn't say registered representative, for example. So if a registered representative is gonna be signing off on the AI verification, the sponsor should reject that and go back to the broker-dealer and require a principal, in my opinion, a principal or an officer, or a chief compliance officer, or an authorized delegate of that firm to sign off on the verification. That is separate, however, from suitability. The suitability analysis being performed most often by the registered representative themselves, they should also sign off on the suitability. But for AI purposes and verification purposes, I would like to see the principal signing on those letters.
0: Why is there that nuance? An RIA should sign it because they're a fiduciary, but a registered
1: representative being a non-fiduciary is not an appropriate verifier? Well, a couple of reasons. I think you're hitting, you're hitting on it. The first is it's not in the, in, the re, in the language of the regulation. It says registered broker-dealer. So a registered broker-dealer, in my mind, would, would indicate principal, like a twenty four. Uh, Or an officer. The uh, the other thing is, and it's not in the regulation, but there's an there's an unspoken incentive. I think, perhaps, to get too aggressive, because the registered representative, through no fault of their own, is having a very significant check dangled in front of their face, and it's just the you know the one last piece of paper that stands in their way to getting paid. And so, if you remove the incentive. Uh, the financial incentive from the signature and put it with the with the principal who doesn't have that financial incentive. Instead, they have the liability on their mind. They'll most likely be more careful about it. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. Any other best practices that really need to be embraced? I mean, again, 506C may seem a little nebulous to people, but it, it's really straightforward and fairly simple, right?
1: It is. It is. I, you know, I think other, other things we can talk about, uh, you know, maybe later would be, you know, audits and things like that, making sure that you know, things don't get missed. Like AI verification actually did occur. It was signed by the principal. The principal name matches with the principal that signed the selling agreement. Stuff like you know, things like that.
0: Well, I know that 506Cs are becoming far more welcomed in the security space. I know a lot. I think Taylor Garrett from Mountain Dell referenced the fact that this year they expect 18, 20 percent of 1031 DSTs securitized through the space mm-hmm. are going to be under the C standard, which is a big growth over just a few years ago. And it's just growing and growing. So it's an interesting topic. Uh, Thank you for sharing your insights. Very helpful. And thank you for joining us again for another episode of Focus on Alternatives. Uh, For more information on 506Cs, 506Bs, and all things alternative investing, please visit adisa.org. And of course, visit thediwire.com every day for some news on the alternative investment space. Thanks so much.